News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, animals have this amazing way of locating other animals in all sorts of environments, right? Many of them use something called echolocation, which is a natural sonar system where they emit sounds that bounce off objects and gives them clues and information about the type of environment they're in and what is in their surroundings. Now, that's something that humans could learn a lot about. You know, some people actually are. Yes, this can obviously help those who have sight issues, but could it be beneficial for everyone? Well, Dr. Laura Taylor is an associate professor of psychology at Durham University and has been studying echolocation, joins us now. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, it's my pleasure. Can anyone learn how to do this? Yes. So with, you know, anyone uh, who is um, able to basically engage with the process, willing to engage with the process, um, can learn this, yes. Okay, and what, what is the process? What's it like? <laughs> so basically, you make your own sound. Um, so the way people uh, echolocate, um, the ones who do it on a regular basis, they make mouth clicks. So it's a slight brief sound, and then that goes out in the environment, bounces back, and um, this you know the returning echoes then provide the information about what's out there. And um, yeah, these sorts of things. Dr. Taylor, this sounds like you really have to pay attention, right? Because if you have to wait for the sound to come back to you, like, does that work in any environment, like even in a city? Yeah, absolutely. So it's, um, I mean, some echoes return really quick. Um, it really depends how far away things are. Most of the time, the echo doesn't really register as a separate echo. Um, it's more the quality of the sound that you hear. And in the beginning, um, it's helpful to have like a very easy situation, like anyone will probably be able to to um, to hear the difference in the sound, say when you make a sound and you hold a, a plate or a salad bowl <laughs> in front of your face, it sounds very different compared to when that object is not there. And so, yeah, once you've tuned into that, you can then build it up and um, get better and better at it. I know there's a 10-week training program, right, that helps people do this, but can you really kind of grasp it and figure out how to do it in that time? Yes, that's what we found. So we've trained people. They were all adults, um, age ranging from, you know, 20 years up to um, our oldest participant was 79 years old. And there were both people who were normally sighted and then people who are blind. And they um, came to work with us uh, twice a week over the course of 10 weeks. So they had 20 sessions total. And then, you know, when they were by themselves, they could, of course, use it uh, as much as they wanted. So, um, but yeah, so within the course of 10 weeks, uh, what we found was that people in many aspects of, you know, what we measured, how well they did, they did just as well as people who had been using echolocation for 10 years or longer. Interesting. So what are the benefits of doing this? Like, why should we use this? <laughs> so so if you're normally sighted, most of the time you'll use your regular vision to navigate and, you know, to locate where things are, find your way or decide what to do when you walk around things, for example. But say if it's very dark or there are low vision conditions, then this can come in useful. Uh, for people who are vision impaired or blind, the benefit is more obvious because in, in many ways, echolocation can provide information that's a bit similar to vision and can then help orientation and navigation. And um, for what we've also found, but this is research that we've not published yet, is that when people learn echolocation, they can also, they um, sort of have a benefit in other aspects of cognition, like working memory and so on. But this is work in progress, but, you know, sort of along the lines, there might be benefits of people who are normally sighted when they learn this. Hmm. Okay. So this is ongoing research. And what, yes. no, normally what kind of animals in what environment would use echolocation? So bats are possibly the best known echolocators who live in an environment like us. So in, in an air filled space, I mean, there are lots of marine mammals who use it. Uh, but then they live in water, so that's a little bit different in terms of how sound propagates and um, what you can do. Um, but there are also other animals um, that use echolocation 
but they are not as proficient as bats. So, for example, certain oil birds and also um, rats and mice, to a degree, appear to rely on <laughs> on echolocation. Is this something that humans like used to do perhaps more commonly? Did we get out of the habit of doing this? Yeah, it's possible. I mean, one thing that surprises us in our work, I think, is how quickly people can catch on. There's some variability. Some people get better very quickly. Others take a bit longer. So there's uh, quite of uh, variability across people, which at this point, no one really knows, you know, what's the cause of this variability. But um, like in general, people pick it up quite quickly. And so, yeah, it's possible that our brain sort of is an innate um, ability to deal with echoes. And I think most people appreciate that because when you walk into a building that's very reverberant, say like a cathedral church-like building or gym hall, we immediately can appreciate that the quality of the sound is that of a big space as opposed to like a small furnished office. Right. You're saying we could, we already kind of use this in a way, don't we? Yes. And the process of echolocation that you know, we then investigate our research sort of just takes it to a next level because you actively make your own emission, the mouth click. And then, um, you know, we we go into a lot more detail than just saying, is this a big room or a small room? Right. So we get we have the sense of it. We just need to fine tune those senses. Yes. That is so interesting. Well, thank you so much for telling us about it this morning. <laughs> You're welcome. That is Dr. Laura Taylor, who is an associate professor of psychology at Durham University, talking about echolocation. And they study this in how whether or not humans can learn how to do it, we can. They're, they actually offer a 10-week training program that helps people who definitely have sight issues, but they said anybody can actually learn how to do this. It's fascinating stuff. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, there are a couple of things in the depths of the ocean that freak me out. Great white sharks, definitely. That's, you know, because I saw the movie Jaws when I was a little kid. Uh, giant squid. Who isn't scared of those things? And octopus. So why, I ask, would anyone want to farm Octopus? Well, that's what we're going to turn to our Scott shots for this morning. Scott, why would somebody do this? Well, I think the first answer is because it's going to be immensely profitable if oh. they can figure out how to do it. But I just will say, Simi, that you're not alone with the octopus fear thing. They're creepy. Uh, they, well, some people have called them the closest that we will get to experiencing an intelligent alien that like intelligent alien life form it's this weird thing right they don't have any bones they're giant and they can move into like little teeny tiny spots and they're also extremely intelligent did you know that an octopus has better eyesight than a human I believe this. I believe all creepy, amazing things about an octopus, which is also why I, I won't swim where I can't see the bottom. Yeah, and that's a that's a really common thing. Now, let me ask you this. Would you eat octopus? I don't actually like octopus or taco, right? If you go and yep. eat at a restaurant. I, I don't. I find it, I don't know, I think it's just the texture too. But people love it. People in my family love yeah. it. I, and I've always heard, oh, it's how it's prepared. It depends on how it's prepared. I'm just not a fan. Sure, yeah. I'm one of the people that do love it, but this story, it just, it's its so hard. It's one of the things that makes me angry. There's a company in Spain that is on its way. We're not there yet, but it's on its way and very likely to become the first commercialized octopus farm. And this is coming. This is, there have been several companies that have been trying to do this for a few years, but this company in Spain, it, they're like right there for farming octopus. But they're so smart. You just told us, Scott, I could see why this would bother people. Yes. So a lot of people are upset about it. Uh, and there's been a lot of protests around the world in over a hundred different countries. People have made a big stink and they're trying to get some legislation in place uh, here in Canada and in the States, as well as in places in the UK. They're considering legislating it, but a lot of people are calling for a global ban on octopus farming because what they're trying to do is increase the amount, they're going to breed octopuses in farm and increase the amount of them 
to just an absolutely incredible number for the purposes of, yeah, providing octopus meat like globally for, for people to consume because this is one of the things that we just seem to have caught on to. But people are asking the question, is this sustainable? Have we learned nothing from um, um, fish farms, factory farming, that type of thing where we just create, 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 and then later find out maybe this wasn't the best idea? Well, first of all, is it octopuses or octopi? Octopi, that's right. correct. So when the octopi rise up against the humans uh-huh. <laughs> because they're being farmed, I want to be able to say, wasn't me. I think that. I've never enjoyed eating you. <laughs> and, you <laughs> Talk know, to that guy even over if there. I, even if I did enjoy eating you, Mr. Octopus, I did advocate for, for your proper place in the food chain, not in a tank, in a building, you know, with uh, ultraviolet lights being shone on you, but out in the ocean where you're free to, you know, eat other things and have other things eat you as is, you know, the way that it was intended. Hmm. Okay. I can see why people are upset about this. Um, but what do you, obviously somebody's going to try to make money off of it when it is yeah. so popular because it's a very popular Mediterranean dish. Very much. It's a very popular like Japanese dish. And these are cuisines that are they you know becoming more and more popular every year. You betcha. We see t- uh, taco and poke places everywhere. Octopus is big in poke. Uh, but what, just to give you like sort of an idea, this company that it's called Nueva Pescanova, they're in Spain. What they're doing right now, they have a few, huge tanks with like 50 octopus in them and no other stimuli because they say, hey, we've discovered that they don't really need it. In the wild, octopus can be sort of cannibalistic. They sometimes, you know, will eat each other. But in their in Amazing. their scenario, yeah, in this lab, that hasn't happened yet. So they're saying, oh, we've managed to find a way to breed. Have they? Calm. Well, this is the question. Calm octopus. What they're talking about is that this could grow to the point where they have uh, in a square meter of tank up to 15 octopus no, in a square is meter and 3,000 octopus being used for, for, you know, until they show up one year. day at the farm, Scott, and there's just one. Yes. And that one has been systematically eating and getting rid of all the other ones. Yeah. And I mean, they do have a, their octopus are known for escaping. They can get through like little teeny tiny pipes and through cracks and stuff. They can climb out of tanks. They're resilient creatures. I don't like any of this. Also, this would make a great movie. Yeah, I think we should like learn from from these ideas. The idea of it being a movie, like let's let's get ahead of this before it gets to the out of control point, and like try to stop this idea. You Such know, Such is not the lesson of human civilization. <laughs> I would say, unfortunately, not. But if people are going to continue to enjoy that dish, you're right. Somebody is going to try to make money off of it. Unfortunately, right? yeah. So fascinating, Scott. Thank you for that. This is Mornings with Simi. I have been waiting all weekend to talk to Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun, and he joins us now. Good morning, Vaughn. Good morning, Simi. Okay, those results. Come on, let's talk about this. So two by-elections on the weekend, both of them won by the NDP, but it wasn't so much as the winners here that we're interested in as in the people who came after that. Yeah, good news for the NDP. Uh, They were expected to win, but they not only won, they won handily. But the real good news for the NDP is what happened to the opposition parties, particularly BC United. Uh, Look at Langford. BC United finished fourth in the riding formerly held by John Horgan. And the only reason they didn't finish last is because there was a communist candidate there. So, I mean, uh, you can't find anything to chair about for BC United here. And Can we compare Kevin, it to previous elections? Like, how did they do in the last couple of elections? Uh, well, they've dropped from about 30% of the vote there in that riding 10 years ago down to a rounding error in terms of their share of the vote in that riding. So, you know, they, they've, the other riding... Mount Pleasant is not really a big deal, but uh, less than 10% of the vote in a suburban Victoria riding with a lot of populist sort of middle-class voters. I mean, Kevin Falcon is supposed to be crafting a strategy to appeal to those people. But the, the two things he's got trouble explaining here, I think, and it's going to be interesting to hear what he says. I mean, first of all, the name change didn't go anywhere uh, with voters. I think a lot of voters went BC United. What's that? They did recognize, however, BC Conservatives. They're on the ballot. 
They take 20% of the vote coming from nowhere. Look, conservatives haven't even run a candidate in that riding for 20 years. The conservatives haven't been a major factor in most ridings in British Columbia for decades. Okay, so, was it about the message? Let's talk about the different message well, then between BC United and the conservatives. So that's a good point. I mean, first of all, recognize, name recognition. Right? The, the BC United is a new name. They've only been around for three months. Uh, I think it was a mistake to change their name, but in any way, they did it. So nobody knows what the hell you're talking about, and organizers say that on the doorstep. Well, go to the Conservatives. The Conservatives got two things right in Langford. The first is they had a recognizable name that is getting a lot of publicity nationally. Pierre Polyev has made the Conservative brand very popular in a lot of corners here in British Columbia. Second thing is, the Conservatives picked a good candidate, picked a local realtor, Mike Harris. And what Harris did is a message to the Conservatives. He did not go heavily on this anti-trans stand that the Conservatives candidate, social Conservative candidate, took in Vancouver Mount Pleasant. He went on bread and butter issues. He said, we're going to look at transit in the region. We're going to deal with taxes in the region. He picked issues that resonated with the voters. So it's a by-election. It's low turnout, Simi. But a double challenge to Kevin Falcon. His name isn't connecting with the voters, and the conservative name is connecting with the voters. Okay, and that was clearly the case in Langford. But let's talk about what went like right for them over in Mount Pleasant. Well, I or guess, more right, I guess we should you say. Know, I mean, look, Mount Pleasant is such a strong NDP seat that it stayed NDP when the party was almost wiped out in 2001. So. There's not an awful lot to be said there. The candidate who won there is going to be an interesting story because Joan Phillip uh, is herself uh, an an activist in the Indigenous community. And in the past, uh, she and her husband, Grand Chief Stuart Phillip, have both been very critical of the NDP on Indigenous issues and environmental issues. So, uh, you know, she'll be a voice in the NDP caucus for a set of views that at the moment are not heavily reflected in NDP policy. So, but it's healthy for the party to get somebody like that in their caucus because then it's a voice that they hear from. Right. right? So, you know, I, 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 as I said, I, Vancouver Mount Pleasant, the only thing that's really interesting in Vancouver Mount Pleasant is the conservative message there didn't connect. And I think it's because their candidate there, Litsky, was um, a hardline social conservative. Yeah. British Columbia is not a heavily social conservative province. It can be economically conservative. It's certainly populist on issues. And I think that's what worked for the conservatives over in Langford. Okay, so what do you... And I saw the press release that that BC United put out about we knew this was going to be hard. We knew there was going to be work to do. Clearly, there's a lot more work to do here. Yeah, there's a huge amount of work to do. And look, they're saying, well, you know, what do you expect? We're going to connect in three months? Well, conservatives connected in about two weeks. So clearly, uh, they knew something about what they were doing there. And clearly... Uh, BC United can make as many excuses as they want. They've got one hell of an uphill climb ahead of them, including the logic of the name change in the first place. And the Conservatives now have a presence in the BC legislature already because Kevin Falcon kicked John Rustad out of the of the opposition caucus. So if he hadn't done that, the Conservatives wouldn't already have a presence in the legislature. So I think, as I said, Simi, there's an awful lot of explaining to do. I think that within the Liberal Party, many haven't accepted either Kevin Falcon, uh, you know, as the right candidate, or worse, the name changes. Lots of Liberals don't think that was a great idea, and I think they will be vocal and there will be pressure on Falcon to show fairly quickly they're going to turn it around. You know, we've said rebranding, Simi. Rebranding is a very, very expensive exercise, you know, and the Liberals are still having trouble raising money. They're not really even keeping up with the NDP. Some weeks they are, some months they aren't, but it's expensive, and how are the Liberals going to raise that money, especially when I think some Liberal supporters will be disillusioned by what happened, particularly in Langford. Okay, and what are the potential repercussions of all this? Well, I think the 
the one really interesting thing is, what are New Democrats going to say about it? I mean, first of all, they're very happy with the win. They're very happy that the opposition is divided. And they're happy that um, David Eby turns out to be able to hold on to uh, the NDP standing in the province, even though he's certainly not quite the populist charmer that uh, John Horgan was. But will there be voices in the NDP saying, you know, we should be thinking about a snap election? Like, I was oh, looking boy. at John Horgan on election night. Rob Shaw had him on. You know, and Horgan's very funny. He's pointing to the fourth-place finish of BC United. He's making a joke. Horgan is saying, hey, you know what? They might get relegated. So English football, uh, BC United sounds like a football team. You do badly in the English football league, you get relegated, relegated to the second tier. But I'm also thinking, if John Horgan were premier and... Bob Dewar was still his chief political advisor as he was. Those two guys would be thinking about a snap election for the fall. Why not? The opposition's divided. Uh, you need a mandate. Go for it. Uh, Eby says that's not in the cards, Simi, but I still think that some strong uh, New Democrats who see an opportunity here to carve out another four-year mandate are going to be saying to the Premier, hey, you know, Premier, don't rule it out. Like, you need a mandate. Why don't you think about a fall election? Oh, boy. Even though he has said repeatedly, oh, no. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, no, I need a mandate. Like, that's an argument, right? Always. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you need an issue, right? And it can blow up in your face. But I think we saw in 2020 that, you know, people said they didn't want an early election. But when one is called, people go, oh, okay, well, we're having an election. I guess I better figure out who the hell I'm going to vote for. Are uh, you going to vote for a party you never heard of? I mean, they didn't in Langford. Are uh, you going to vote for the Conservatives because you like Polyev, this guy who's running federally? Uh, I mean, for the NDP, all of those calculations work because, as we see in Langford, if the opposition – well, in, in Langford, they, they won with 53% of the vote. But in closer ridings – you don't need 53% of the vote. All you need is for your opponents to be divided among themselves. Yeah, I could see there's going to be a lot of interesting meetings going on today. Yep. Oh, lots for us to talk It'll about. It'll be Bond. interesting to see what Falcon says when he comes out. And yeah. uh, that press release that you referred to doesn't deal with it. He's got some explaining to do, and it'll be interesting to see what he says when he surfaces. It sure will be. All right, Vaughn, thank you. Bye-bye, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Time for an update now on what is happening with the apparently multiple investigations into the Titan submersible and what happened. And Canada is front and center in these investigations as well. We're joined now by Global National's Mike Armstrong with the latest. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. So what is the situation? Canada seems to be deeply involved in this. Uh, absolutely. I mean, there will be two investigations actually here in this country. Um, Saturday, the Transportation Safety Board had a press conference or a little scrum in the morning to explain why they're investigating and, and how that investigation will go. Why the, the why is quite interesting. They said, look, we have um, it's part of our mandate. It's a Canadian flagged vessel that left from a Canadian port. Uh, and then what they'll be looking at is um, the safety issue. They're, they'll try and figure out the why this happened and how this happened and try to make things safer. They do not assign blame. Now, the blame part will go to the RCMP, which is conducting sort of a pre-investigation. So the RCMP Saturday had a press conference to explain what that means. Basically, they're looking at whether a crime was committed and whether a full criminal investigation should then be triggered. Uh, and that's where the blame would come from. Um, but basically, they had investigators on the dock as the Polar Prince pulled into St. John's Saturday morning and uh, started conducting interviews. And it's interesting, no one was detained. They just did sort of the first interviews and we're told there'll be follow-up interviews down the line. Okay, and so what is happening at the, at the, out at sea at the site of the Titan wreck? Yeah, well, in the first days after the sub was found, the Coast Guard, the U.S. Coast Guard, which had a press conference yesterday, um, said that they mapped the site, basically documenting where everything was for investigators. And now they're in the salvage operation phase of things. So they're they're picking up uh, parts and pieces of the Titan, bringing them back up to the surface. So investigators can then analyze what's found. Um, they are saying that they will not be releasing any images uh, from the from the wreck site. As a matter of fact, they won't even say what items are being recovered. 
All they'll say is that they do have the resources on site that, and are able to recover pieces, uh, basically meaning that they've got those remotely operated vehicles. They're able to go right down to the bottom of the ocean floor, 3,700 meters, uh, pick up pieces and bring them back up. I spoke to an expert this weekend who said, you know, it's complicated, but you can pretty much bring anything you want up. Um, as a matter of fact, even as small as a as the chip in a in a phone or something like that, the they have the technology to detect it and the ability to manipulate and pick it up. Hmm, interesting. All right, and the U.S. Coast Guard is also investigating now. Oh yeah, they, so yesterday their press conference they announced a uh, Marine Board of Investigation, uh, an MBI. That's their highest level of investigation. Um, at, at some point down the line, they'll even have public hearings. Right now, they're focused on the recovery of those items from the, the from the ocean floor and interviews. They actually had people, the U.S. Coast Guard had people here in St. John's over the weekend interviewing crew and passengers from the Polar Prince. Um, but their final report will focus on safety. Uh, but there is also, and this is sort of what distinguishes it from the uh, Transportation Board in Canada, there's also an accountability aspect to what, they're, what they will find. They can uh, recommend civil or criminal charges against someone uh, if they find something went wrong or something was done wrong. Hmm. Okay. And the big question I feel like, Mike, that a lot of people are asking is, who is going to pay for this incredible search effort that was undertaken? Like, what do we know about that? Yeah. You know, the Coast Guard did address that yesterday. And I would even say perhaps with some eloquence, they, they said it's a ma- as a matter of law and as a matter of policy, they do not charge for search and rescue. Um, they said people take to the water every day. Uh, the the ocean uh, is an unforgiving environment, uh, and whether people take it, you know, go out in a in a boat without the right training or bad safety gear, or even if they're intoxicated, they said the, the Coast Guard answers the call, puts their lives on the line to save lives. Um, but as you say, like this was a massive operation, and they gave some final numbers yesterday: eleven ships, uh, five. This is involved in the search. Eleven ships, five uh, ROVs and four aircraft that did 39 sorties. So a very expensive operation, but they will not be sending a bill to anyone. All right. Well, Mike, thank you so much for the update. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. Does it feel to you that a lot of people are breaking up? You know, maybe getting divorced, maybe breaking up long-term relationships. Well, clearly it felt that way to our contributor, Scott Chance, because he decided to take a look at this. Good morning, Scott. Good morning. How are you, Simi? I am good, thank you. Why was your curiosity piqued by this? Well, okay, so I think I'm kind of at that sort of age group amongst my, like, uh, demographic where it feels like this is happening. I feel like this is happening a lot. Every week I seem to hear about or know of somebody who is like, yeah, we've kind of reached that point where we've just kind of decided that we're going to go are separate ways. And I find it rare. And I, you know, you and I don't know each other that well, but I have, I, I feel like you have a very successful relationship because you guys have been together for a long time. You and I'm your partner. I'm in awkward right now. What are you doing? What are you doing? Well, I'm just asking. I uh, want to know. 30 years. That's 30, amazing. Yeah. 30 years this year, actually. Oh God. 30 years next week. Um, yes. So <laughs> congratulations. I just that. Um, we'd already have our, we've already had our sure. celebration. So, uh, yeah, I think that is a milestone. That is, something. But you're right, though, in that there is an age and a time that you go through where it does feel like almost like a make or break time. You look around you and you see a lot of the couples that you perhaps became friends with when your kids were little. Things start to change. Exactly. Yeah. And I feel like I'm seeing that more and more and more. Uh, So I talked to Andrew Sofin. He's the president of the Canadian Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. He's been studying this stuff for over 20 years. He has a new article in The Walrus where he claims to know what's breaking up so many couples these days. And I asked him about that. But first, before we got into that, I wanted to know if my instinct was right. Are more and more people ending their relationships these days? I'd love to see some real good research around this. But anecdotally, yes, couples seem to be the sort of the temperature has been rising over the years and the pandemic kind of turbocharged that sort of rising tension. But now it feels like the conversation that's happening almost across the country is this like cost of living, cost of groceries. We get through one thing and then there's just another thing just heaped on top that um, trickles down into into like every part of your your life. Right. You're really hitting the nail on the head. 
you have to look at it systemically. You have to look at the whole system. In other words, most people just think of like, oh, this is my marriage and we're good together and that's all. And we sort of put it in a silo. But the reality is, is obviously all our relationships and especially our most important relationships are affected by everything else that's going on around them. So I think you're bang on with the idea that inflation, the housing market, you know, the tail end of the pandemic, it is absolutely having a major impact on couples now in a way that wasn't happening 10 years ago. The world has become so unpredictable now that it's seeping into everybody's relationship. So they even sort of feel, well, you know, how predictable is my relationship? And that now you wrote this fantastic article in The Walrus. In it, you you point to something else that you think is having a dramatic effect. Obviously, the cell phones, and especially, I'd say, the iPhone, have taken over our worlds. All of this is having such an impact on relationships, because right now, you can be in a difficult moment with your partner, and it's so easy just to turn to the the cell phone and start doom scrolling and TikTok and Instagram, it's so easy to check out. But that's the problem. If everybody's checking out, if you're sitting there with your partner and you would rather do Wordle than talk to your partner, we got a problem. Yeah. And we're seeing it happen over and over and over and over again. People aren't sitting down at meals and talking to each other. People are sitting down at meals and scrolling. You know, I've been a couple therapist for over 25 years, so I've seen this whole arc. And I'm seeing people so disconnected now because it's so easy to disconnect. It's almost too easy. And like this, I think, is, is at least for me, one of the next questions on that mm-hmm. discussion about phones is because I, like I know that I spend too much time on my phone, you know, and I think like even like my awareness of it. Yeah. is is like a big part of the battle. Like you don't have to convince me that I'm addicted to my phone. Right. The question is, is like, what do we do about it? Uh, give us some advice. Like, you know, for couples that might be listening and they're feeling this right. and they're going, right. gosh, I can relate to that. Is, is there yeah. is there just like some high level, like, hey, start here and, and build from there? It's first and foremost, it's like you just did. It's the awareness of, guess what? We're all addicted to the damn phones. That's a reality. And if you have it sitting right beside you, you are going to go to it. It's like a drug. So the best thing to do is, is when you come home, put it on do not disturb somewhere else that where you can't see it. And at least that first hour or two when you're home saying hi to your partner, your family and, and everybody else is nowhere near you. Because if it's in front of you, you're going to go to it. We are all helpless with this. So the only way you can do that is just put it in another room, will ya? Let's, let's face it. Most of us, after our day of work, we don't really have to know anything else, right? We, we really don't. You really could just put it away until tomorrow morning. But, you know, if you want to look at it before bed, go right ahead. But really, the minute you get home for work, just stick it in a drawer just put it away. Is there no surprise there, right? Good advice. That, that, that was good advice. Yeah, the cell phones are are a real thing, but uh, man, I so much easier said than done. I think. Is it? <laughs> You're talking to the wrong person on that one, Scott. Right? Like I am not. Well, and thus married the, to my the thirty phone. year marriage. Oh, I don't you know? know. I wouldn't say that. I think I'll tell you what I have found is so important is can you still laugh? with that person. Hmm, yeah. Does that person still make you laugh? Like just when you're about to get mad, can they say something that makes you laugh? Because I think that is absolutely essential. Yeah. See, the problem for me is all the things that make me laugh are like on my phone. I'm like pulling up these no, memes no, no. and trying to show them. So my no. wife, like, isn't this can funny? Can they say something or do something that still make you smile or laugh? Like, Not that's as much very- as my phone. Oh, I'm, we have issues. We're working on it. There's some issues here, Scott. 
So I think, I do think this is like a, maybe it's a post-pandemic thing too. Definitely. I think so. Yeah. There's a lot going on in everybody's lives, you know, so. Put the phone down. I thought that was incredibly valuable advice that they just gave there. Thank you so much for that, Scott. Sure thing. That is our Scott Shanty. You want to weigh in? Is that something you're noticing out there too? Lots of people breaking up perhaps in your area and your circle of friends that you have? This is Mornings with Simi. Listeners may have heard of the grandparent scheme before. This is a scam that targets an older adult where the fraudster poses as their grandchild who is in need of cash right away because they are in trouble and can't get a hold of their parents. The success rate is low, but it works enough that scammers just use the shotgun approach. Sounds normal, everything there, right? I mean, that's the voice of our next guest, Dr. Preet Banerjee, except that it wasn't actually his voice. It was an AI-generated version of his voice. Now, here's the thing. It is hard work these days to make sure you are not getting scammed. Analyzing your emails, double-checking your phone calls, basically questioning everything to make sure it is on the up and up. And still, it's not enough because so many people lose money to sophisticated and clever scams. And now you have to add AI-generated voices like that one to all of this. It's where scammers can use these deep fake voices to impersonate close relatives of yours, maybe even beg you for money because they've been kidnapped. Yes, it happens. How do you protect yourself against this? Well, Dr. Preet Banerjee is a columnist for The Globe and Mail and a behavioral finance researcher and joins us now to talk about that. Thank you for being here. Thank you very much for having me. Okay, well, wait a minute. That voice sounded just like you. (laughs) I know. It's so scary. And even scary is the fact that that clone of my voice, which I generated, took me about five minutes to put together after a cursory look at how to use this technology. So if I can use it, trust me, more sophisticated uh, criminals out there are probably developing even more accurate sounding copies. And they can make it sound like your daughter or son is saying anything that they type into some text. Is, Is this working then? Are people falling victim to this? It is working to such a surprising degree. When I published that column a week ago, I was then inundated with people who said, oh my God, this happened to my mother, or this happened to one of my patients, the exact thing that you're describing. And if you think about this type of scam, it's they're called impersonator scams in general. It's kind of the catch-all phrase. And the grandparent scam in particular is a you know, a fairly old scam. And in the old days, it used to be someone would call up uh, sort of a random number hoping to get a senior citizen. And they would just say something like, Grandpa, is that you? I'm in trouble. And they'd make the sound a little bit muffled like they're overseas, maybe in Mexico, and something bad has happened and they need urgent cash. And the success rate was relatively low, but it worked enough that they kept on, you know, using this scam. But now... It's so incredibly easy with this AI technology to clone anybody's voice that, you know, whereas before, maybe you might ask a few questions to say, well, how do I know who this really is? It doesn't really quite sound like you. Now it sounds exactly like, you know, a grandchild. But now it's so good that even parents are getting fooled by voices that sound like their sons or daughters. That's how good it is now. And the scary part about that, Dr. Banerjee, is that you don't want to, if it sounds like somebody you know, you're not going to pester them with a lot of questions, right? Like, what's your birthday? Or what did I say to you last time I saw you? Like, you're not going to ask those questions because in your brain, you're thinking, well, this is them. It sounds like them. Yeah, and if we take a look at this story that happened uh, just a few months ago, there was a woman in Arizona who had this AI voice cloning scam put on her, and it was the sound of her daughter. It was the actual sound of her daughter's voice sobbing. And imagine if you're a parent and you hear a son or a daughter sobbing, saying, I'm in trouble, these men have kidnapped me, and then a man takes the phone and starts saying, listen, if you ever want to see your daughter again, you need to wire us a million dollars, which was the original demand. Demand. And once the mother said, listen, there's no way I can get a million dollars, they said, fine, we'll take $50,000, but we have to pick you up in a van and you have to put a bag on your head and you have to get into this van. She was freaking out. And I think any parent would because all rhyme or reason goes out the window if you heard the voice of a loved one in distress. Whatever common level-headed sort of response you think you would have, forget about it. So how can we protect ourselves? 
Well, one of the things that I think is really important is to develop an AI safe word for your family. So this is, you know, this actually comes from the world of old school espionage and, and spycraft. But, you know, we've seen in movies time and time again, when you've got these clandestine operatives trying to verify the identity of someone they've never met before, they will come up with these odd sort of password exchange phrases like the eagle flies alone at night. And they're like, not if I have a you know a shotgun or whatever. It's something like nonsensical right. phrases. And that actually is the biggest telltale sign that you're a spy because who talks like that? But in, in the purpose of developing an AI safe word for your family, you just need to get together with your family and come up with something. And it can be nonsensical because you're not worried about your cover being blown. You're just trying to be able to identify when someone calls you up with this urgent emergency situation that they are indeed who they say they are because it is so easy to impersonate a loved one. That is excellent advice. And you know what? I'm going to talk about this at home today to get this done. Uh, Dr. Banerjee, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. You may have heard the news that the big tech companies like Meta and Google are planning to block news from their platforms in Canada. And that is in response to the passing of something called Bill C-18, which is the Online News Act. Happened a couple of days ago, made it official. Now, both of these big platforms, and we're talking Facebook here, right? Facebook, Instagram, Google, they have warned that this bill is going to lead to the removal of news in Canada on their platform. So what is the point of this, Bill? Is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? We wanted to kind of break this all down now. Jeanette Eggison has joined us now, publisher at the TIE. Jeanette, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Are you concerned about Bill C-18 and the impact this could have? Well, it's going, certainly going to be very interesting in the short term. We've never actually um, seen this happen before. So it, yeah, if, if Facebook and Google... Um, uh, carry through with their plans to block news on their platforms, um, a lot of sites are going to uh, feel some short-term pain. Uh, so it's a vital source of traffic, especially for uh, finding new readers for a lot of news sites in Canada. So that will be that will be a huge change in readership patterns and strategy for a lot of sites. Um, but we really don't know how long the block will, um, will last for or if it will be permanent. How did we get to this point? Well, Bill C-18 was introduced last year, uh, so in 2022, and so it's taken that long to, you know, work its way through Parliament and through the Senate. But leading up to that, um, the uh, big newspaper lobby in Canada called News Media Canada had been uh, lobbying the government for such a bill for quite a few years. Um, And it reflects sort of the awkward position that a lot of publishers are in with the big platforms uh, where we, um, you know, rely on these platforms for a lot of discovery. We've built audiences there. We've built a lot of lists there. Um, But the platforms um, have taken um, the lion's share of the advertising revenue for quite some time. um, And that has led to a lot of uh, layoffs and newsroom closures. So it's um, and Google and Facebook have been in the Canadian journalism um, industry for a few years. Uh, they both have granting programs, um, but Bill C-18 is meant to sort of rebalance the, the power um, between the platforms and publishers and come to more negotiated agreements uh, that reflect what it actually costs to produce journalism. Right. So the thought was that this would lead to some negotiated agreements, as you say there, but instead these companies are saying, no, we're just going to pull out. What would that do to a website like the TIE? Uh, I think we're a bit of a, a little bit of an outlier with a lot of the new digital upstarts. So we started in 2003 and we have a quite a bit of direct traffic. So that means that people come directly to our website. Um, we do have a lot of people who access us through Google. But when I look at the search terms that people are using to get to us, there's things like the TIE or TIE News. So I consider that direct traffic. Uh, but there are a lot of new readers that come our way through social platforms like Facebook and like Google News. So we, I think we would be okay serving like our existing readers, the people who come to us regularly, but it's new people finding out about us that would be um, a change and we would need to change strategies. I'm sure all new sites would have to. Right. How beneficial has it been 
to have your your site kind of on Facebook, on Instagram or on Google? Like, do you know that that drives a lot of traffic? It's changed. So Facebook actually has been throttling news traffic in Canada. Well, I think worldwide for a good year now, like most publishers are um, reporting a huge drop in traffic from Facebook. Um, And certainly earlier in the 2010s, uh, there was a lot more traffic coming from Facebook. Um, There was, yeah, there was a lot more interest, I think, in Facebook in pushing the work of publishers. Um, So we've already had to sort of switch gears. Um, We've been building up our Instagram presence quite nicely. But the the problem with Instagram and a lot of the newer social media apps is that they don't actually um, encourage users to leave their app. Um, So you actually don't get a ton of click-through traffic from a, a a platform like Instagram. Uh, Google News can be quite good for discovery. A lot of people start their news reading days on Google News. So I think Google News actually would be the uh, more impactful one. Right. I guess the question is, do people actually click on it or do they just kind of glance through it and read the headline? So you want people to engage, right? And so if you want a higher level of engagement, is could this could this be something that forces people to engage more directly with your website? Yeah, I'm, I will be really fascinated to see how user behavior changes. So if, um, if, if people it does, know right? that, if it, yeah, yeah. Uh, if it does. So that's the thing too, is I, um, Google, Google ran a test in February for about five weeks where they did block news on their platform, on their search results. And I was included in that test they tested it on about 4% of Canadians, I think. Um, and, you know, they didn't contact me for their feedback, for my feedback or anything, but I would say that it really degrades the service. And especially when uh, people are looking for accurate information on current events, I think it could actually be dangerous if they are not alerting the user that they are blocking news results uh, because people expect that they are being connected with the best, um, most up-to-date information when they are using a search platform like Google. Uh, so I think it would actually be very irresponsible if Google and Facebook did not alert users when they are searching for content that they are blocking Canadian news. And I, I hope they take the responsibility seriously and that they do put a note like that if they do decide to block. That's the thing about this story, isn't it, Jeanette? That it does feel like this is a game of chicken that is going on here. And Canadian you know, news consumers are are caught in the middle. Definitely. And a lot of uh, newer websites, newer news websites are uh, going to be disproportionately harmed because they don't necessarily have the brand name recognition uh, that larger um, entities do like CBC or Globe and Mail. So I'm imagining that if users are looking for news on platforms, they don't find it, they'll sort of rattle through their mind of who they can think of, of who is a a news brand and just go directly to those sites. So I think um, in a news block situation, the the larger news brands will fare a bit better than the small uh, new independent sites. So do you have a plan for this? You've been getting ready for it? (laughs) Um, Not really. We um, alerted our uh, readers uh, with an article and and social posts on on Friday. We've been thinking of the different places where where news shows up online. So we've been getting more interested in things like LinkedIn um, and there's like Apple News. Uh, But no, it, it will... It will cause a pretty fundamental uh, rethink if the block goes on for a long time. I guess we'll see what happens then. Jeanette, thank you Mm -hmm. so much for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate that. That's Jeanette Agassin, who's the publisher at the Tai, tai tai.ca. And they are definitely waiting to see what is going to happen with this Bill C-18. Essentially, what what the government has said here is that they expect these big tech companies, which benefit from putting the news on their websites, to pay their fair share of it. And in response, those companies have said, you know what, we're just going to take news off of our websites. And how do you like that? And in the middle are Canadian consumers a lot of them who probably don't know are going to wonder, hey, what happened to the news that I used to get on my website? And that's how this is all going to shake down as these kind of big companies and the government face off against each other. And we'll see what happens with people's habits, right? Find a way in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, so the Lions played last Thursday, but boy, oh boy, what a game. Huge victory, 30-6 to over Winnipeg, and they're looking pretty good right now. Let's check in with Coach Rick Campbell. Coach, you're still feeling the effects of that win, right? 
Yeah, it was really a good win to get on the road. Obviously, Winnipeg's been a really good team the last couple of years, and uh, anytime we can beat a West team on the road is a good thing. So, a uh, big win for us. Can we talk about continuity here too? Like, do you think that has made a difference that you've got a lot of returning players this year that clearly get, okay, this is what we're doing? I do. I do. We made an effort a couple of years ago. We brought in, we brought in some new players and some new coaches and we have continuity um, with a core group of players and with coaches. And I always think that helps out any team, any team I've been on that's been good always uh, get some continuity going. And so uh, we're hoping that uh, continues to pay off. All right, you got a bit of a break here though, right? Because there's not another game until July 3rd? Yeah, we were calling it kind of a miniature bye week. So we played Thursday and then we don't play again until the next Monday in Toronto, actually a week from today. So um, it's good. Our players are getting a little bit of rest and uh, we're back practicing on Wednesday. So um, it's going to be a tough one. Toronto's 2-0. and um, They've looked really good in their first two games, so it should be a, should be another good football game. Okay, so then how do you get keep that momentum going, and what do you want the team to focus on? Well, we need to put the last game in the rearview mirror. Um, I would say that whether we won or whether we lost, it's real important that you move forward and that uh, you know that we don't get too proud of ourselves and that we just keep working to get better. And our guys have been really good about that so far. Even on the plane ride home, we weren't celebrating too hard. I mean, our guys were happy we won, but they weren't uh, they weren't celebrating too hard, which is a good thing. And um, I think they understand the work it takes to win each game. So. You know, if we understand that then, uh, and, and keep trying to get better, then we'll, we'll keep going forward and away we go. That must be so hard for you, though, right? Because you want them to celebrate a little bit, but you're like, guys, it's three games in. We're still early in the season here. Exactly. So um, you do want to celebrate because a lot of work goes into winning. But uh, at the same time, you've got to move on to the next day. So uh, that's what we're doing. And uh, they'll see Toronto play as we, as we get into this work week. Toronto looks good. And so uh, we know we'll have our hands full. You will, and we will be watching. It's a joy to watch right now, i got to say. So thank you so much for that. Uh, Great job, and we'll talk to you next week. All right, awesome. Have a good day. Thanks. You too. That is Rick Campbell, coach of the BC Linesman. They look so good right now. They are now 3-0. Had a great game against Winnipeg last Thursday. Don't play again until a week today. They're playing Toronto, and of course, you can catch those games on AM730 or CKNW. It's going to be great. This is Mornings with Simi. What do the players have to say about it? And that's a question that I don't think there's been enough answers for when it comes to this decision that we heard about from the NHL to say, you know what, next season, no more of these specialty jerseys jerseys in practice, no more of them, you know, being worn by players and then auctioned off and many of them for great, great causes. That's just not going to happen. They ran into too much trouble with some of the Pride Night jerseys that they had last year. Some of the players, few of the players uh, in the league overall didn't want to wear them teams found it too difficult to deal with hence none of them are going to be worn now and great causes we're talking about here right whether it was hockey fights cancer uh, whether it was for uh, Diwali whether it was Chinese New Year whether it was for you know LGBTQ plus communities there were all sorts of great reasons so the NHL made that decision but I do wonder what about some of the players who might want to still do this well joining us now to talk about the reaction to all this is Jeff Patterson host of the rink wide Vancouver podcast and contributor with Sakaris and Price. Jeff, thanks for being here. Hi, Timmy. What have you heard about the reaction to this among the players? Yeah, we really haven't heard an awful lot. Obviously, it's off-season and the players are scattered, but the hockey world coming together for the NHL draft in Nashville, and in fact, the NHL annual award show is tonight in Nashville, and so I would think that this would be the first access that a lot of media members would have to uh, some of the star players in the National Hockey League, and Conor McDavid is likely to win the Hart Trophy, so he'll be on hand and others. And so I would think, rather than the usual off-season questions about uh, team building and next year and those types of things, that these are the questions that some of the players will be asked. So uh, I had seen a little bit of reaction on social media. Uh, you have to remember, I mean, essentially this decision was made by the commissioner and the governors on Thursday uh, to cave to the wishes and demands of, what, eight or ten players that refused to wear the Pride jersey last year. So I think the majority of the players embrace the opportunity to welcome all communities and some of the underserved. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think players, some of them want to take a stance and some of them want to use their platform to uh, amplify voices and those types of things. So I think overwhelmingly you're going to find when we hear from players that, 
many of them are going to be disappointed like uh, so many of the fans were when uh, this news came out on Thursday. Right. But Jeff, I guess the question is, will they actually say something about it? And do they have the ability to do that? Uh, I mean, <laughs> until the question is asked, I guess uh, we won't know. So I, like, I don't have a crystal ball. I can't predict what uh, individual players are going to say. But I do know that the question certainly will be put to these players. And I think some of them now, I mean, we saw in the bubble when the players uh, basically put the playoffs on hold to take a stance for Black Lives Matter. I think more than ever, uh, young players are more in tune with social causes. I think some of them feel that they've got a voice now. So I would expect that, yeah, I mean, look, it's a group of 700 full-time and 1,000 over the course of a season that play in the National Hockey League. So, you know, it's not going to be unanimous. But I would think that uh, there are some and some that have significant uh, profiles around the hockey world that are, at least I'm hoping that some of those uh, will recognize their place in this discussion and will step forward and, and push back. Now, uh, is it going to have any impact? I mean, I think the decision has been made, but they don't play games until the fall, so there is still some time, I suppose. And just to clarify uh, with your intro, Simi, this is for the warm-ups prior to the game only. Uh, I still think teams are going to produce these jerseys. I think some of them will wear them in practices, and then players can autograph them and auction them off. So this is the league saying no to the 20-minute warm-up ahead of puck drop on a given game day, and that's all that's been instituted for next season at this point. So just a uh, a slight clarification there. Okay, so then they can still, like, during practice, wear these jerseys if a team chooses to do that. Yeah, that's my understanding, and I hope that most of these teams will take that opportunity. Like, the Canucks have been leaders in this regard here in Vancouver and have done some incredible work, uh, again, amplifying voices of marginalized communities. And, uh, you know, sort of forgotten all of this is the artists that have done the work. And there have been some really inspired and beautiful pieces. I've bought some stuff. Like I've bought some of this stuff. You're not alone. And so I I feel for the artists because think about the platform there to mix art with hockey. I mean, two things that generally don't go together, but it's a way for some of these artists to, to be exposed to a totally different audience. And, you know, like I cover the Canucks, I do it for a living, Uh, 41 game nights a year, 41 home games. Uh, there's a lot of similarity. And so I'll tell you that like, I enjoy, I look forward to it. I mean, these special Me lights have become part of the, the uh, a fixture on the Canucks calendar. And so it just, it, you know, it breaks up, it introduces color. Uh, you know, so I, I hope that the Canucks recognize their place in all of this as a club team, that they can still give the artists the platform, that they can still you know, produce these jerseys. They won't be able to wear them prior to a game, but there's nothing that says they can't have the players that want to wear them the day before take pictures, uh, again, autograph yeah. them, raise money. So I, I do hope that the 32 member teams, uh, you know, if they're going to respect the league's ruling on the warm up, I think there are ways around it that they can still carry on and do these nights as well. The theme nights can still go ahead. The commissioner said that. It was just, in his words, a distraction, which, uh, again, I thought was a a brutal representation of the whole issue here. It really was, because there is something special about seeing the players actually in these jerseys, playing the game of hockey or practicing, warming up, whatever, uh, especially for kids, right? To see all the different things, all the different causes, all the different reasons that players have to do this. And I seem to remember too, Jeff, that when it came to even Pride Night for the Vancouver Canucks, a lot of the players were very vocal about saying, I support this. Right. And big names, Quinn Hughes, J.T. Miller, others that stepped up and they said like they, they wanted to be a part of it. And I said, so that's why I hope the team don't take that away from the ones that, you know, here in Vancouver was Andre Kuzmenko. But uh, that meant that 19 others wore the warm up jersey. And again, it's 20 minutes uh, prior to a hockey game. And the National Hockey League would rather just run from the issue and bury its head in the sand. And we've seen that before. You know, the league loves to trumpet this idea that hockey's for everyone. And then you get a decision like Thursday and you have to question whether hockey truly is for everyone. And, you know, there are people out there that would say, like, what's the big deal? It's just a warm up jersey. And I would counter with what's the big deal. It's just a warm up jersey. Wear it. You know, spread the message. <laughs> exactly. of, spread a message of positivity and inclusivity and all those types of things. Because you're right. Some of these groups, whether it is Pride Night or you know, the Diwali jerseys or Lunar New Year or, you know, indigenous groups, on and on and on. 
Uh, This is an opportunity for groups that maybe don't feel that they're seen and heard and recognized by the National Hockey League. And so, yeah, whether it's a family or young kids that, you know, this, it gives them at least one night a year where they think, no, like the NHL gets it. Like they're, they're speaking to me. I'm wanted in the building. And I think that was the message. Again, this is just a warm-up Jersey, but really the warm-up Jersey had become symbolic of the night itself. And to the ones, the eight or the 10 players out there, you know, to me, this is all about inclusivity. Like, do you believe in inclusivity? Do you believe in human rights and all those types of things? If you don't, then you're the problem, plain and simple. And too many of them use religion to, you know, as a shield and hide behind. Again, like they play in the game. Like th- This is the crazy thing in all this is that these players that objected to wearing a warm-up jersey with a rainbow on it, they still play in the game on a designated pride night. So what's the problem with pulling on the jersey for 20 minutes that sends a message of love and compassion and everything else? I have no idea. And you know what? I'll be looking to see how these questions get answered tonight as well. So, Jeff, thanks so much for your time. All right, Simi, thanks. Appreciate that. Jeff Patterson, host of the Rinkwide Vancouver podcast and contributor with Sakaris and Price NHL Awards. Lots of questions that are going to be asked of the players, and we'll see, I guess, what some of those answers are. This is Mornings with Simi. What happened in Russia over the weekend? Everything seemed to change very quickly. It felt like there was something monumental happening. Was the leader of the Wagner Group actually trying to attempt a coup on Vladimir Putin? Then, all of a sudden, those troops stopped. They were only about 200 miles, apparently, from Moscow before they suddenly announced they were going to turn back. And that was that. There's still so much confusion about what was going on there. Peter Rutland is with us, a professor of government and the Colin and Nancy Campbell Chair for Global Issues and Democratic Thought at Wesleyan University. Thank you so much for joining us. Good morning. What do we know at this point about what happened there? Well, it's still pretty murky. We haven't heard from Putin himself since Saturday. And Prigozhin also has not been making any public statements. Nobody quite knows where he is. So there's still a lot of question marks over what the hell happened. What were uh, Putin's goals in making this deal? He called the guy a traitor in the morning and in the afternoon he said, okay, you can, uh, you can leave the country. So it's, it's, it's very mystifying. And the longer this doubt continues, the more the question marks are raised about the stability of Putin's uh, grip on power. What did you see happening there when when it was unfolding? What did you think was happening? Well, this had been coming for several weeks that uh, there was an order kind of forcing Prigozhin to have his troops sign contracts with the defense ministry that came out on June 10th. And Prigozhin refused to, to accept that. So he was trying to put pressure on Putin to allow him to continue his kind of independent status. And things came down to the wire, and, and Prigozhin kind of realized he wasn't going to get his way. So he took this extreme measure of like invading his own country to try to persuade Putin to agree to his demands to preserve the Wagner Group as an independent entity. And he also was demanding the firing of the uh, defense minister and chief of general staff. Okay, so putting aside the unknown about what exactly happened there, what kind of an impact do you think this will have? Because clearly, he obviously did get pretty far from what the videos were showing there. And he, there was a moment there where people thought they could go all the way, go right into Moscow. So how does this change what we view about Russia? Well, it suggests that uh, some of the military units on the ground were sympathetic to Prigozhin because they didn't tried to stop him taking over Rostov, a city of one million people, and then driving 600 kilometers towards Moscow. The only people that tried to stop him were some helicopter units that were, were uh, actually shot down by Prigozhin's forces. So this was not just some kind of uh, demonstration or political protest. I mean, if you've got people shooting down helicopters on your main highway to Moscow, there's, there's a problem there. Okay, now if you're the other countries, I know that everybody was on phone calls and trying to figure out what was going on. What does this say about Vladimir Putin's strength or his perceived strength in that country? Well, at the end of the day, Putin prevailed, right? He he persuaded or forced uh, Prigozhin to throw in the towel. 
to, to leave the country and they're going to disband the Wagner units. So Putin is still in charge, but he looks more and more fragile. And, you know, if this kind of thing happens again, the rest of the Russian political and military elite must be thinking Putin, Putin can't survive another one of these incidents. This also looked, I think, for people who have studied Russian history, Soviet Union history, this looked almost, you know, familiar because we've seen these kinds of situations unfold in that country before, haven't we? Yeah, I mean, the the coup in August 1991 that, that failed led to the collapse of the Soviet Union. And then there was an attempted coup by the parliament in 1993. And in both those cases, we saw tanks on the streets of Moscow and we saw the soldiers in those tanks reluctant to pick sides. So this is, as you say, a story that we thought was a problem of the early 1990s and that Putin was supposedly the guy in charge who'd solved all that instability. And here we are 30 years later, back in the same situation. So it's it's, it's kind of depressing, although it's, it's, it's good news for the Ukrainians because the Russians are, uh, if Russians are killing Russians, the Ukrainians are going to have an easier time winning the war. Do you think it now all eyes are kind of on Evgeny Prigozhin to see what happens with him? I think his lifespan is probably not uh, very long these days. Uh, Putin is ruthless dealing with traitors. Whatever he said to get him to, uh, to get Prigozhin to to concede on Saturday, I I doubt whether Prigozhin will be able to resurface in Russian politics if he has a quiet life in Minsk. Uh, doing whatever he wants to do there, um, that's fine. But I don't really think Putin would allow him to maintain a political presence in Russia. Already they're closing down the offices within Russia that uh, Prigozhin's company uh, ran. And so I think he will be excluded from, from the media networks. Right. There was a video that was just posted actually this morning where it's supposedly from Prigozhin. And he's claiming that he did this because the the Russian military killed some of his uh, mercenaries there. And that's also been a story that's going around, isn't it, that they feel they're being caught in the middle here? Yeah, he was very uh, direct in his criticism of the conduct of the war and the capacity of the Russian military. But those videos that were released, I think they were the, the last one that came out, he uh, he'd taped it on uh, Saturday evening. So I don't think there's been anything new from Prigozhin since Saturday evening. You know, there, I think there is one out this morning that they're just trying to confirm right now. But the, the question, what does okay. Vladimir Putin have to do in order to show the world, or the country, Russia, that he is still in charge here? What do you think is going to happen? Well, he has to start making uh, some public statements because he's been... Uh, absent from the TV screens for, for, uh, since since Saturday, Saturday lunchtime. And so he has to show leadership. And <clears throat> it'll be interesting to see if, if he is going to fire uh, Sergei Shoigu, the defense minister, or the chief of general staff, because it's difficult for him now. If he, if he does fire them, that signals that he's kind of uh, agreeing with Prigozhin. So in a sense, he's kind of stuck with them. And he, he can't fire them right away, because that would prove Prigozhin was right. So Putin is, is in a very deep hole, and he doesn't seem to be doing anything to, to get out of it right now. Right. Although, as we say, it just happened, right? So watch in the days ahead to see what the reaction is going to be. Yeah. I mean, there already before this incident, the, there was a degree of uh, panic in the Russian elite because of Ukrainian attacks on uh, border villages around Belgorod and the drone attacks on, on Moscow. So already, even before this, there were worries what's going to happen with the Ukrainian counteroffensive. <clears throat> what happens if Ukraine continues to escalate strikes on Russian cities? So the Putin's narrative that there is no war, this is just a special operation and business as usual, everything is fine, that that narrative is completely shot through by these these, these developments. All right, Peter, thank you so much for your time this morning. 
Good to talk to you. Bye now. That's Peter Rutland, professor of government and the Colin and Nancy Campbell chair for global issues and democratic thought at Wesleyan University. Talking about, and, and everybody's still trying to figure this out. Anybody who studies Russia, talks about Russia, you know, they're all trying to figure out, well, what exactly happened over the weekend? How is this going to impact, you know, the war in Ukraine? Is this the beginning of the end for Vladimir Putin? Like what really happened? And that, as you know, Peter Rutland just pointed out, is something we're not going to know for a little while yet as the reverberations are still felt over really what went down on the weekend.